Back to John chapter 6. And I'll be reading verses 41 to 71. And I'm not preaching on the whole chapter, all 71 verses. Um, Otherwise we'd be here for a few months. (laughs) Yes, so I'll be reading verses 41 to to, um, 71. And our main focus is going to be on 60 to 71. The reason I read, had uh, Ian ring the first, uh, sorry, read the first 40 verses is I will be referring back to bits and pieces in that. No, because it's, it's necessary and helps us understand uh, what this test of true discipleship is all about. So chapter 6, beginning at verse 41. Then the, Jew, then the Jews then complained about him, because he said, I am the bread of life, which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this, Joseph, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says... I have come down from heaven. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at that last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and, and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, He has seen the Father. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And the Jews therefore quarreled amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has has eternal life, and I will raise him up at that last day. For my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, sorry, <coughs> therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this saying, This is a hard saying, who can understand it? When Jesus knew himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh provides profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time on, many of the disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then Jesus said to his twelve, Do you want to go also? Do you want to go away? Simon Peter answered and said, uh, (coughs) Sorry, 
as Simon Peter answered him, Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you was a devil? He spoke of, of, sorry, he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading from your word. And, oh, Father, we pray that you would help us as we explore this matter of the test of true discipleship. To whom will you go? Well, Heavenly Father, we pray that thy spirit would open our hearts and our minds to your word. And, Father, may that word be a blessing to all and a challenge to those who are not your children. Well, Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless this time together for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The test of true discipleship. The question is to all of you, to whom will you go? It's quite an interesting statement um, by, by Jesus. In our passage today, <coughs> pardon me, the Lord Jesus is experiencing a transition metaphorically from a summer of harvest, all those people seem to be able to eat, to an approaching winter, a summer of harvest of ministry to approaching winter. The summer of harvest had begun with a revival in Israel under John the Baptist. Now, Saviour at one point could say in Luke, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. Now the summer is over and winter is setting in. And we read in verse 66 of our text, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Having recounted, having recounted the controversy among the Jews uh, over Jesus' claim to be the bread of life, John now says this controversy, in verse 52, this controversy divided Jesus' own followers as well. His very disciples that have been hearing him. And Jesus responds to the people by confronting them with the implications of their reaction. And he presses the twelve for their response. He certainly doesn't change his message to make it more friendly. That would be a temptation so that more would hear it. He doesn't change it. It's in Jesus' statements and in Peter's confession, we learn more about Jesus and what it takes to be truly one of his disciples. So I want to look at this section in two parts. I'll do the headings in a moment. In verses 60 to 65, one section. And verses 67, 66 to 71. Each part of that response, we see there that many of it starts with many of his disciples, talking about a lot of his disciples left him, which is followed by the statement regarding Jesus' identity and his teaching, made first by Jesus himself and then by Peter. Each part seems, includes a statement by Jesus about his betrayer. We see that in verses 64 and 70 and 71 about Judas Iscariot. You see, Many who were with Jesus did not seem to be his true disciples. What then is a true disciple? What is the relationship between being in the church, in fact, in being a Christian? The question, of course, has exercised the church from the beginning as it did in Judaism before. The issue arose here in Jesus' ministry, 
for these people who have difficulty with Jesus' teaching and who end up turning away from him are called his disciples. We see that in verse 60 and 66. They were called his disciples and yet they turned away. They were disciples in the sense they had come to Jesus and heard his teaching. But this level of discipleship would not count for much in the end because the soil in their hearts, the soil in their hearts was not, not such that Jesus' seed would take root and produce fruit. We also note in the first part of our reading, uh, in the first part of the chapter, that Jesus' ministry had already for some time been causing controversy with the Jews. He has now challenged the disciples, or those who are following after him, with new doctrines which they found hard to understand. Now dissension comes to the disciples as well. In fact, we're only about a year from when he was actually going to be betrayed, not only by by Judas Iscariot, but also by Peter. And we also read when he was betrayed that they all forsook him. Every person that was with him forsook him. And you know, there'll be such times in the, in the life of the church as well. Times when men and women will not endure sound doctrine. They'll heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears, giving them what they want to hear, and turn them away from the truth, turn them aside to fables, and turn them to what they want to hear. We see that in things like salvation by works, where people think they can work their own salvation out. Or people who have a complete disregard for the Lord's day. Or social or prosperity gospel, where people are encouraged to have more faith, become more prosperous. And if you're not prosperous, what's wrong with your faith? It's what they want to hear. How do I become more prosperous? We have more faith. When such times come, of course, the temptation is for us to despair and to expend our energy lamenting over the past glory days. And we've got to be careful of this as a, as, a, as a denomination now, where the church is being rattled, rattled by Satan. We say, oh, you know, a few decades ago we had something like 14 to 20 congregations, and now we've got seven. We despair because we look focusing on the past. But however, however, do you understand why you follow Christ? What motivates you to stay with him? We see many times in the Gospels that the Lord Jesus was acutely anxious that men and women should not come after him for wrong reasons. We find him many times pausing and asking men and women whether they were following him for the right reasons. Jesus seemed to be concerned that he would not attract those who had not laid hold of the right and true things. However, saying that, let's let's remember that he was never disappointed at the end of his life upon this earth when he found found himself deserted by his friends. Nor was he surprised. Of course he wasn't. He's God. He's both God and man. Verse 64 there, we're told that... um, (coughs) Pardon me, I just turned that. But there there are some of you who do not believe. Well, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe and who would betray him. So he was aware of the possibility that from the beginning he even, uh, there would be desertions. He even predicted that, those desertions. In fact, he went to great lengths to question his followers because he knew for certain what was ultimately going to take place. He's probing their, their thoughts, probing their, their, their words because he knows their thoughts. Think about Luke 9 at the end of that chapter 
we read of a man full of zeal and vigour coming to Christ and saying, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. The end, the summary was, and that's the kind of person we would like in our church, isn't it? The church of God is looking for that in the present time. But look at Christ's, Christ's response at the end of that chapter. It can be summarised by saying, you're full of zeal and enthusiasm, but wait a moment, do you realise exactly what it means to follow me? It means loss of friends, it means giving up things that you most value. We're going to look at our passage today. Two simple questions. Why do so many abandon the Saviour? And why do others stay true to the Saviour? We look at verses in this section, verses 60 to 66. We're reading in 66 that our Lord Jesus explained what he meant by eating and drinking his flesh. That, I have come, that from that time on, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. As soon as he explained that, they walked with him no more. The word disciple here is not merely referring to the twelve, but the scores of perhaps hundreds of people who were following Jesus and listening to him teach as a rabbi. These were the summer of harvest, these great flock of people that were following him. The harvest of Jesus' ministry in Galilee until, until he failed to meet their expectations. We read in verse 15 what they expected of him. Therefore, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, they were looking for an earthly kingdom, for Jesus to lead a rebellion against the pagan Romans. That's what they were looking for. This was the sort of messianic king they were expecting, the kind of Messiah they wanted. But he wasn't going to be moulded into their expectations. Then right after that, Jesus preached a sermon about his heavenly origin, saying he was the true manna from heaven. And then in verse 54, he says something very dramatic. Or is verse 54? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He was said, he's saying his own body and blood was the basis of salvation for obtaining eternal life. Through his actions and through his words, Jesus revealed himself to these people with a new clarity. He's expanding on what he's been teaching up to now. As I said, it was about a year from, from his, his crucifixion, so he'd been teaching for a couple of years. But now he's getting into some of the more deeper parts of his ministry. Because the harshness of Jesus' statements shocked them because of their materialism, because of the clear teaching that came, that life came from death. On the one hand, <clears throat> the return of the Son of Man to heaven after his flesh, after his death and resurrection, will show them the true meaning of what he's talking about. On the other hand, they had not allowed for the work of the Holy Spirit in their understanding of the situation. You see, Jesus is not talking about anything merely carnal, nor is he teaching automatic salvation through some mechanical participation in a meal. We see in verse 63, it is the Spirit that gave life to, to raise Christ. And the word he spoke was a living interpretation of this figure. But because they did not believe... It was lost upon them. It was lost upon them. And now we clearly see the real issue, the issue of faith and unbelief amongst his disciples. 
And of course, Jesus knew, knew who would be faithful. By that is having a true faith that was given by the Father. The unfaithful ones now separated themselves from him at this stage because they didn't have that true faith. Many, many from that day on abandoned Jesus and walked with him no more, while others remained true to him. Many went back to their houses, back to their families, back to their callings, where they'd come from. But now they went back, not for a short time, but forever. See, we're talking about something that is forever. When you abandon Christ, you abandon him, you abandon him forever. If your faith is not true, you say, this is not for me, this is an eternal abandonment. So all those many of these disciples walked away from him. They've gone forever. Not a few. And it tells us, and many, the fact that many walked away, it shows us the disease of unbelief. It's a disease. And when men, some went, others followed. I agree with you, Fred. I agree with you, John. I'm going. I'm going. What a terrible thing. You see, the gospel has been preached to many here in Everton Park, in our Mary Beach Mission, at camps, in our congregations, across a large range of ages, in the triple S camps and things like that. But sadly, many, many will go back to, the, to their way of life unchanged. Think about this. I want you to think about this particularly. Do you come here each Lord's Day but go away unchanged, unmoved, not determined not to apply the word of God to your life and not to listen to the urgings of the Holy Spirit upon your conscience. Is this your attitude, kids? Every Lord's Day, you hear God's word faithfully preached. Do you go away unmoved, not listening to mum and dad, unchanged, thinking everything is going to be okay? Then in verse 66, we see the reason for the departure. That is from that time on, or from the time that Jesus preached the doctrine, that he is the bread of life, that those who feed upon him shall live. From that time on, they withdrew. They left. The corrupt, corrupt and wicked hearts of these men, or these disciples, had taken offence at the doctrine, which should be of the greatest comfort to them. He's the bread of life. It's a wonderful verse, that verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. That verse alone is a sermon. It's a sermon of salvation. It's a sermon of eternal life. Those few words. It's the power of God's word. Christ saw that many people would leave, and yet he still went on and said what he had to say. For each one of us who are children of the living God, the truth of the gospel must be faithfully faithfully delivered. Whoever may be offended by it, we can't afford to water it down, but we deliver it with compassion. Look at the way the Lord Jesus delivered the truth to people with a great compassion. That's the responsibility we have in our ministries. It means that our ways, our thoughts must be aligned with God's word and not aligned to fit our ways. We can't change his word to fit somebody's ways. We stick to the truth. We have the truth. Inspired, infallible, inerrant truth. A way of truth, of life. Maybe we see the degree of their 
their apostasy, in verse 66, they walk with him no more. Perhaps they were initially taken in initially, uh, previously by some sort of mob psychology. Come along and, and have this free feed. Come along. Great, this man's saying great things. Come and hear him. Not even thinking about what they're actually doing. And kids, maybe it's the right, maybe you think coming along to church is the right thing to please parents or grandparents. But that's not what church is for. It's to hear the word of God and pray that the Holy Spirit would apply it to your hearts. No, these people followed him because they got fed. He says that in verse verse 26, doesn't he? Um, Jesus answered them and, and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Nice full tummies. I don't like what's being said. I'll go away nice and full. I'm being fed. And we'll deal with other things another day. Purely mercenary reasons, materialistic reasons. Paul tells us in Romans that those who are of Israel inward, outwardly, and there are those who are of Israel, or of the church outwardly, and there are those who are of Israel inwardly. He talks about the circumcision of the heart. The true Israelite is one, Israelite is one who is of Israel inwardly. With the new heart, the circumcised heart is a regenerate heart. So there were Israelites who externally seemed to be converted, but others who weren't. It's the same today. Some people appear to be strong and wonderful, and suddenly they depart because their hearts haven't been circumcised. Their hearts haven't been regenerated. There's been no work of change in their hearts. And those that work, walk away, kids, are like the chaff. They go away and they're of no further use. We want you to be the wheat. The ones who are the true disciples, inwardly, they are the wheat. And Jesus had warned the disciples about such things long before he told them the parable of the sower. You see, the good soil represents a regenerate heart, a heart brought to life by the work of the Holy Spirit. The stony soil and the thorny soil are hearts that have not experienced that transforming work of the new birth. Of course, we can see the soil, the outward signs, but we can't see the person's heart. To us, the plants all look alike. Until persecution arises and the stony soil uh, and the plants wilt in that stony soil. All the plants look alike, but until the thorns of temptation multiply and the plants on the thorny ground have the life choked out of them. When the temptations, they follow more and more temptations and it excludes the word of God from their heart. To us, all the plants look alike until the plants on good ground begin to bear fruit, some 30-fold some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. That's what we're looking for, for believers to be productive in their ministries. We read in verse 64, but there are some of, the, some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And what an insightful uh, light he has here. He throws this marvellous light uh, before us. But it also demonstrates his marvellous patience in, in his earthly ministry. He knew, he knew the unbelief and treachery that some of them, uh, some who professed to be his friends, even allowing for Judas and to be one of his, his apostles. 
Yet he continued his ministry upon this earth. You see, we're going to get things thrown at us all the time. But let's press on. As Jesus said to to, uh, John the Baptist, press on into the kingdom. Don't be swayed by those things. We don't know people's hearts. We work on the externals. We work on what we can see and what we can hear. But we also look for the fruits of the Spirit. And of course, it's, it's known uh, from what John says. He, John, one, in the first epistle of John, in chapter 2, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made, that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. When the time came, when the, when the separation came, it became very clear who were Jesus' true disciples and who weren't. And the same applies to us. When the time comes, when the test comes, when things are a little bit hard, we will see our lives being tested. These departed disciples had been with Jesus for a long time. They'd escaped the pollutions of the world. For They had not walked in sin as the rest of the Gentiles had walked because they were with Jesus. They had broken with their old ways through sheer determination and effort. And yet, that doesn't count. When the test came, they walked away. If the heart is not regenerate, you will walk away. You will walk away because the change hasn't occurred in you. There's no... And the heart needs to be changed because Jesus said, for out of the heart comes all manners of sins that defile us. These disciples, this large group of people, had heard the truth, but they were still corrupt. And eventually they returned to their, holy way, their old ways. They'd been given holy food to listen to, but their corrupt hearts meant their appetites had not changed and they returned to their former ways. Then isn't this the essence of hypocrisy and false profession in religion? If you are guilty of it, you need to remember that you cannot deceive Christ. You make a false profession, he can see into your heart. He sees you, he knows you, he will expose you. It may not be till the last day, except you repent. And of course, when Jesus preached his sermon, many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? By hard, that didn't mean it was hard to understand. By hard, it was hard to accept. Because the real problem was not Jesus' sermon, but their hardness of heart, their intellectual difficulty to understand because their minds hadn't been changed, their hearts hadn't been changed. And this is a profound question that points to their own hearts by saying, who can understand it? They're suggesting they're not to blame. I can't understand it, so I'm out of here. I'm gone. People can't accuse me because I don't understand it. But in fact, it shows they didn't have the willingness to listen and to receive his message, and so they stand self-condemned. Of course, their real problem is hard hearts. Their real problem is hard hearts. They didn't want to submit to what Jesus is saying. And how many times have we found that when we're talking to people? When we talk to people about the gospel, we find hard hearts. People not willing to listen, to even accept clear teaching that we, might, that we can bring to them uh, from the word of God. And of course, however, cutting, instead of cutting them slack, Jesus confronts them with their response and says, does this offend you? He's, he's, he's very insightful, isn't he? He could see what's going on. 
Does this offend you? And here we see the light revealing darkness. Their offence is the opposite of faith. And Jesus makes sure they realise what they are saying. By those words, they're really asked to think about what they're, they're actually doing. This question, of course, searches the soul of each of us. Do we find any of Jesus' teachings offensive? Do we find them offensive? Or do we accept them? And of course, the disciples here, in order to excuse themselves, put the crudest literal, crudest literal interpretation on his, on his words. They act as if Jesus, in verse 52, was talking about cannibalism. The reference Jesus made to eating his flesh and drinking his blood is a metaphorical way of describing the person who lays hold of the reality of his atoning sacrifice by putting faith in him. When we come to the Lord's table today after worship, we're remembering through the bread and through the grape juice the sacrifice Christ made. We're not actually eating his physical body. We're not actually eating his, drinking his physical blood like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It's a, it's a way of trusting in him, realising who he is, what he's done, and reinforcing our faith reinforcing our understanding of him. Those who misunderstood Jesus were offended by his talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I think they were perhaps concerned with getting another physical meal. So Jesus uses the realm of the physical to teach a vital spiritual truth. They were looking for more food when they came across the lake uh, to see him. But let us never forget that it is the spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing. It is by the still, quiet work of the Holy Spirit on hearts that God's works prospers. It is Christ's words entering into our consciences, which is spirit and life. Jesus Christ, by grace, the grace of God, still performs those miracles in this sinful world by changing the hearts of men and women who hear his word. He gives out that Holy Spirit, that work of regeneration and kids, unbelievers Jesus Christ can change you today if you submit to his word he came primarily to purify to himself a people peculiar, zealous of good works zealous to witness zealous to preach and zealous to serve faithfully he came to reconcile men to God and bring us the knowledge of truth so let's look at this final question now the second part is not as long as the first part. What did other, why did others stay? A few who went after Christ for the right and true reasons. We see this in verses 65 to 69. Have you ever faced the question of yourself? Did I follow Christ for the right and true reason, particularly when things are difficult? Very difficult. I remember one person that I was talking to going through a, a really bad time. A really bad time. And she said to me, Chris, this is a terrible time, but I have my faith in Christ. And she was going through an absurdly difficult time. I have my faith in Christ. And of course, these disciples have been with him a long time, for several days. They called themselves his disciples, but yet they abandoned him. Those who abandoned Christ had only themselves to blame. Those who kept covenant with him, only God to thank 
Verse 65, he says, And he said, Therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. Those who did not abandon Jesus were those who had come to Jesus not merely outwardly, <clears throat> but inwardly and spiritually. And they had done this through God the Father's efficacious and enabling grace. It's the work of God, as I've mentioned before, is God who ordains. He says, you're going, to, you're going to be one of my children. Here's the Holy Spirit to regenerate your heart. And you'll come to knowledge that Jesus has redeemed you. And so you can, you'll be, become one of my children. And dear, and dear disciples, the twelve, Jesus says to them in verse 12, do you also want to go away? Do you want to go with all these other people? The twelve had been with Christ long enough to know him and his doctrine so that none of them could later say they had fooled into, into following him. But if they had any secret desire to leave it, it was stopped with Christ's words. So what is the true reason for following Christ? The answer is found here in the great response by Simon Peter. Then we, here we have Peter's zealous and believing reply to the question with a question. Lord, to whom shall we go? Is that our response? Is that our response? Do you want to go away? Lord, to whom do you want to go? To whom shall we go? Peter responded for all of them with a the response of a regenerate heart. See, if you leave, if, if we leave Jesus, to whom will we go? Where shall we find any guide to compare with him? Shall we find some other rabbi, some other teacher? For them, it was a rabbi. Or some other religious teacher like the scribes and the Pharisees who teach salvation by law and by works? If you leave faithful teaching, where will you go? Where will you go to find greater faithful teaching? What Peter is saying is that none of these are the answer. For none of these will bring us salvation. Each of you need to consider that if Christ, if you left Christ, to whom would you go? Where in all eternity would you go? Where would you find rest and peace? Anywhere else but with Christ. We heard this morning from Ian, and he expounded um, Psalm 23. Beside the still waters. Think of those words. Beside the still waters. Our souls are at peace. We are when we're with Christ. Because we've seen uh, who he is. Can we better ourselves by turning our back on Christ and going back to our old ways? Of course we can't. Why? Because with confidence and certainty with Peter, we were able to say to Christ, in the second part of verse 68, you have the words of eternal life. They're the words we are searching for, we, have, we search for, and we have found. These are the words we want our unconverted children, our covenant children to say. You have Christ, you have the words of eternal life. And this is a remarkable confession by Peter, a humble Jew, to say these words. Jesus, whom the scribes and Pharisees agreed in rejecting, was an act of mighty faith. But Peter was able to, to say this because his heart, because his heart, he knew that Jesus was unique, that Jesus alone had the words of eternal life, the message which brings us eternal life. Our hearts have been made for things eternal, fellowship with the living and true God. Nothing else will satisfy, nothing else will fulfil our deepest longings. 
And that is because Jesus Christ alone is Christ. The prophesied Messiah who can deliver us from sin and reconcile us with God. Have you ever realised your unworthiness and sinfulness? Have you ever said to Christ, you must save and you alone? I'll be surprised if you haven't. I don't know how many times I've said it. You, Christ, you must save and you alone. Have you ever witnessed a person that Christ alone has the words of eternal life? This has to be our outreach to the world, from this congregation to the people of Brisbane, to our families, to our friends, to our neighbours, from each one of us individually in our ministry upon this earth. Even though the twelve didn't quite understand Christ's words, yet, for as yet the doctrine of the cross was unknown to them. Yet they were satisfied that Christ had the words of eternal life because their hearts had been changed. Or bar, of course, uh, Judas Iscariot. And then Peter said in verse 69, Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's the words of a converted man. Have you said those? We have come to, be to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's words come from the word, the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. Those words that lead us to a sanctifying work that continues in our life. Christ, by his words, had assured eternal life to them. They believed his plain sayings and therefore were resolved to stay with him. The others fastened onto those hard sayings and therefore forsook him. We know in our hearts that he is the word, he is the work the word of eternal life. That is, again, another testimony of the Holy Spirit. Let's never underestimate the wonderful, beautiful work of the Holy Spirit residing in us. Let me conclude with a few words. <clears throat> Jesus preached and there was a division. To some of these words were hard and they left. To others, the words were words of life and they stayed. Judas didn't leave at that, at that point and continued as the hypocrite he was. So not all the chaff had yet been separated. The question, what are you, wheat or chaff? You need to examine yourself and make your calling and election sure. If you are the wheat, you will cleave to Jesus he will, he will, and he will not let you go. You will want to worship him, serve him, please him. And once you have tasted that manna from heaven, nothing else will satisfy. Or will you... Also, go away like many thousands do today because your intellectual pride and you reject the word of the living and true God. Like these disciples who were one minute wanting to make Jesus king, the next minute they're leaving. Being unable to come because they were not able to comprehend these great mysteries that he had, uh, he had shared with them. Or will you say with me today, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, you are the one who knows our hearts in this matter. You know our secret sins and desires, who continues to show us daily the way we should go. Lord, have mercy on us as we wrestle with the powers of darkness, with our carnal natures as we seek to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Saviour, Lord, we thank you for thy word this day, which clearly shows us the need to have faith in you and submit daily to you, to submit daily to your word, 
looking for every opportunity to faithfully carry out our ministry upon this earth. A ministry which you have given us the privileges to do. Lord, have mercy on those who have rejected you this day and not sought Jesus while he may be found. Whether today or tomorrow, it may be too late. Assist us now, Lord, in serving you well this Lord's day as we minister to one another together. And we ask all these things in Christ our Saviour's name. Amen.